And once again, good morning. It's great to be with all of you and open up God's Word together. Psalm 23. This has got to be, without question, the most famous psalm in the entire Psalter. There's 150 psalms, but Psalm 23 has got to be the most famous. Um, It's probably the most memorized chapter of the Bible as well. Um, By a show of hands, does anybody here have Psalm 23 memorized? Some of you are very timid to announce that, all right? We're not going to consider that pride if you raise your hand. And no, I won't make one of you come up and recite it for us in front of the church. But, I mean, that was easily half the room, maybe more, that raised their hands. And so, um, perhaps the most memorized chapter in the entire Bible, beloved by Christians throughout the ages. In fact, even a lot of non-Christians love the poetry and the beauty and the message of Psalm 23. But there's one danger, and it's that old expression that we know, familiarity breeds contempt. The danger is that sometimes when you're so familiar with something, you, you, it starts to lose its significance to us, or we lose interest in it and don't give it the attentiveness that we ought to. And so I know as a preacher, that's a danger to try to fight against is, oh yeah, Psalm 23, I know that one. I've got it memorized. I've heard this all before, and we've got to try to resist that. One of the ways that perhaps a preacher might try to overcome that struggle is by trying to find something novel to share out of Psalm 23. What's something new? And maybe nobody for the last 2,000 years has ever found this little nugget in Psalm 23. Well, I'm here to tell you that I've got no novel ideas here this morning in Psalm 23. My goal is never to be novel, it's hopefully just to be faithful to what God's Word says and to preach God's Word and let God's Spirit use His Word to minister to each of us in whatever season we're in this morning. And I trust and have been praying that God is going to do exactly that through Psalm chapter 23. In that spirit, I have no creative title. The title of the sermon today is the title that the ESV gives it, which is, The Lord is My Shepherd. Plain and simple, the Lord is my shepherd. And you know what? You can't really improve on that title. That's a wonderful concept, a wonderful and beautiful idea of God's shepherding heart and care and love for his people. Of course, that's the first line of the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. And so David, the author of this psalm, is introducing this beautiful metaphor This idea that God is a shepherd for his people. Of course, that metaphor must have been near and dear to David's heart. Many of you will know that David, when he was a young boy, he was the runt of the litter among his brothers. He was the seventh brother, and usually it was the youngest who had the duty of being the shepherd in the family. Oh, little David, just go out and tend the sheep for me, his dad must have said. You can watch them. I'll put your older, stronger brothers in charge of more important tasks. You go watch the sheep. And so young David, as a teenager, spent many nights and days out in the fields in Bethlehem, watching and tending the sheep. But we need to know that this metaphor for God, that God is a shepherd, is not unique to Psalm 23, and it's not unique to David's thinking. This is a familiar metaphor throughout the Old Testament, this idea that God is a shepherd over Israel. Here's Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Also the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verse 11, thinks of God as a shepherd when he says, 
He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now, significantly, God is always the shepherd whenever this metaphor is used in the Old Testament. God is always the shepherd. And that's why it must have been so alarming when Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 11 makes this statement in front of a bunch of Jewish listeners. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. These followers of Jesus listening to this rabbi, this teacher in Israel, suddenly and startlingly declare himself to be the good shepherd. They must have been shocked. What is he trying to say? What does he mean? Of course, we know exactly what he was meaning, what Jesus was trying to say, because he fills it in through the rest of the scriptures. Jesus was saying something significant, significant about his person, that he is God, that he is that same shepherd that was being spoken of in the Old Testament. And what's more, Jesus was not only announcing that he and God are one, but he was announcing that he is also our savior because he says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Pointing to the work that Christ had come to do. Where Jesus would lay his life down for our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven and we who were far from God could be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ and we could become sheep of God's fold. And so Jesus pictures himself as the good shepherd. For those of us who are in Christ, we have a good shepherd indeed. Well, coming back to Psalm 23 then, it's perfectly legitimate for us as New Testament readers to read Psalm 23 with Jesus, our good shepherd, in mind. Recognizing that what is being taught about the Lord, who is our shepherd in Psalm 23, is teaching us truths about Jesus, our good shepherd, who has laid down his life for his sheep. And what is it that we learn about those who have Jesus as their shepherd? The first thing is this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want. Now some of you might be going, uh-oh, I have wants. I want to get married. I want children. I want to finish school. I want this job. Am I in trouble? No, of course not. Uh, the translation here is, I shall lack nothing. I think that's how the New International Version translates it. And that's the idea here. I shall not want does not mean I will never desire anything. It means I will never lack anything that I actually need. That God is going to meet all of our needs. Our shepherd will take care of us. We will lack nothing if Jesus is our shepherd. When you think about it, any good shepherd always provides everything that their sheep need. Food, water, protection from predators. Right? Sheep cannot take care of themselves. They're very vulnerable animals. But if they have a good shepherd who's looking out for them, the shepherd takes care of everything provides all of their needs so that they truly lack nothing. They don't have to go anywhere to find something that's essential to their survival. It's all being provided for them by their shepherd. And friends, this morning, 
we can be encouraged that if the Lord is our shepherd, then we are going to lack nothing. All that you need in this life and the life to come. And notice I'm not saying all that you think you need. Or all that you want. But all that you truly need. Everything that's essential to your existence as an image bearer of God will be provided for you by God. Psalm 34 verses 8 through 10 tell us as much. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What an amazing promise. That there are others out there who might suffer hunger, who might lack things that are essential to their existence. But for those of us who are seeking the Lord, we will lack no good thing. David's going to go on in this psalm now to show us what those good things are that you and I will never lack if the Lord is our shepherd. And the first thing that our good shepherd provides for us is rest. Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You might even underline, makes me lie down. He makes me lie down. Did you know that sheep are incapable of resting so long as their needs are not met? Or so long as there are dangers around them? If they know that there are predators around them, sheep are skittish, filled with anxiety, they're worried. If they don't have proper food or drink, they're anxious. But if they are feeling taken care of and they're feeling safe and protected, they can finally rest. They can actually lie down. And so in a very serious or very uh, literal sense, it's the shepherd who makes them lie down because he has to give them the food and the water that they need. He has to free them from predators. And so it's only once he's provided all of these needs for the sheep that they can truly rest, that they can truly lie down in a green pasture. In a green pasture, the food is abundant. Everywhere the sheep are walking around in this pasture, all they have to do is drop their neck down and they can feast until their hearts are satisfied. Being beside still waters, pools of fresh water, there is an abundance of water to quench their thirst. There is everything that they need. And so the sheep can take their rest. In a similar way, it is impossible for a person to rest when you're anxious about your future or when your security is compromised. And so much of our life is lived like that, where we have all of these circumstances that we're going through that are creating anxiety and worry in us, or seasons of life where we're feeling vulnerable and not secure, and it's difficult to rest. And so it comes to us as human beings, a wonderful encouragement when Jesus says to us, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is something that's so essential for life. That we, as image bearers of God, would be able to find rest in a world that is full of anxiety. 
Now, how does Christ give us rest? I think one of the most important ways is this, is that in Christ, God becomes our Father, and our Father provides all of our needs. The Bible teaches us that at the moment that you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you're united to Christ, and because He's the true Son of God, you become a daughter or son of God as well. And now your relationship to God is that of a child to their father. And he is a good father and he takes care of his children. This is why Jesus could teach us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. That we don't have to be anxious about our future. He says this starting in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, he says, by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Friends, we can rest. We can truly rest if we've put our faith in Christ because God is our Father, and he is going to take care of all of our needs as we trust in him. Not only that, but we can rest because in Christ our future is secure. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Christ, our future is secure. God is going to take care of us all of our days. And one day when this life ends and we step into eternity, we will be glorified with Christ. And we'll be in his presence for all of eternity. I wonder if this morning, as you've joined us at church, if your soul is restless, weary, anxious. God gives us rest. If the Lord is your shepherd, you can have rest in your soul. The second thing that this wonderful shepherd provides for his people is also there in verse 2. And simply put, it is sustenance. Sustenance. I know that's not a very common word, but sustenance essentially means that he provides what we need to sustain our lives. So God provides sustenance for his people. Notice again, he says, he leads us into these green pastures, which is a picture of an abundant food supply. 
He leads us beside still waters, which is a picture of an abundance of fresh water to drink. And these were not the easiest things to find in the dry and arid climate in Israel. But a good shepherd, a skilled shepherd, knew exactly where he could find these things. He knew the canyons where water, the limited water supply, would trickle down and still be there late into the summer and into the fall. He also knew the times of day where predators were least likely to be lurking in the shadows and he could bring the sheep into a place where they could find food and water. Well, if God is your shepherd, he will provide sustenance too. Your physical sustenance, yes, that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6. But also your spiritual sustenance. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone. Okay, we don't just live off of physical sustenance, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That there is spiritual bread that we need to thrive and to be sustained as image bearers of God. Jesus, in John chapter 6, calls himself the bread of life. The bread of life. Jesus is making a point there. That he is the true sustenance that we need for life in its fullest sense. Not just to survive another day or a week or month. But to live life in abundance and certainly to enjoy life in eternity. Here's what John 6.35 says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, this is not physical bread or thirst that Jesus is describing. Because he goes on to say this in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. And if you come to me and you believe in me and you trust in me, you will never hunger and you will never thirst because I will give you eternal life. He's talking about a spiritual thirst, a satisfaction that is found in him alone. Everything in this world, other than Jesus, will ultimately leave you unsatisfied. Money won't do it. Success won't do it. Relationships, as wonderful as they can be, they won't ultimately satisfy you. People will let you down. Nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy you. That's why one of the most alarming experiences for so many people is when they come into what they think their dreams are, when they achieve success, and they look at their life and they say, I have money, I have career, I have family, I have friends, I have hobbies, I have all of these things that I thought would make me happy, and yet, I'm still longing for something. What they're longing for is a relationship with the God who created them. We are hardwired for that relationship with our Creator. Augustine, that famous church father, one of my favorite quotes from the fathers, he says, that God has made us for himself 
and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And it's so true. And so until you get to that place where you realize that nothing else will satisfy, you're going to keep chasing and chasing and chasing and coming up empty. And all the while, Jesus stands and says, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, that hunger will go away. You come to me, that thirst will finally be quenched. And this even takes us back to the last point. And then you'll find rest. The third thing here in verse 3 is that our good shepherd provides rescue. He says here that the Lord is our shepherd and he restores my soul. He restores my soul. The word soul here, the Hebrew word there, is in many places in the Old Testament translated life, and it's just talking about your physical life. And the word restores is a verb that can mean repent or convert. It's a verb that carries the idea of turning back or returning to something. And so it's likely that what David means here is that the Lord, who is our shepherd, turns back or returns my life. Fitting with the metaphor of shepherding, the shepherd is the one who retrieves a straying sheep and brings it back to the fold, thus delivering that sheep from danger and bringing safety to it. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus, our good shepherd, constantly leaves the flock to go after that one sheep that is straying, that is going away, that is running the risk of falling into danger. And how many times would each of us have shipwrecked our faith if not for our good shepherd who always has a watchful eye on his church, is always looking after all of the sheep and he takes a roll call every single day. He says, hold on, there's one more. What have they gotten themselves into? He picks up the rod and he picks up the staff and he goes out traveling and he grabs us and he picks us up and throws us over his shoulders and he brings us back to these green pastures. He brings us back to a place where there's an abundance of food and water and sustenance. It's going to be amazing when we're all in heaven and we get to see how many times in our lives the world, the flesh, the devil were this close to getting the best of us if not for our good shepherd standing up and bringing us back. Do you not remember when Jesus was talking to Peter and he tells Peter something very scary? He says that Satan has asked for Peter by name. Now, I hope that Satan has never asked for me by name. That's scary. Hopefully there's bigger fish in the sea that he's going after. It's scary enough to think that a demon might be coming after me, but Satan... He says to Peter that Satan has asked for you by name. And I imagine that chills went through Peter as he heard Jesus say that. And Jesus said, but I have prayed for you. And then he encourages Peter that he's got nothing to worry about. How many times is that going to be true for all of us? That we would have been done for if not for 
our good shepherd who comes to our rescue over and over and over again. The fourth thing that our good shepherd provides for us, and oh how essential this is, is guidance. Guidance, we see that in verse 3 as well. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now sheep are among the densest animals. Most of you probably know this. They're not known for being bright. Dogs are smart. They're also incredibly loyal. Dolphins are smart. Cats. What are cats? How would you describe cats? I, I probably shouldn't even give an adjective because I could get in trouble. But sheep are not known for being smart. They're very dense animals. Sheep need guidance. My former pastor used to tell the true story of a herd of sheep that actually followed one another off of a cliff to their death. It's a true story. It happened in Turkey, and the BBC reported on it back in 2005. I'll read you their report. It's just a paragraph. Turkish shepherds watched in horror as hundreds of their sheep followed each other over a cliff. Say Turkish newspaper reports. Here's how it happened. First, one sheep went over the cliff edge only to be followed by the whole flock According to the reports, more than 400 sheep died in the 15-meter fall. But their bodies cushioned the fall of the 1,100 who came after them, and those ones survived. So there were 1,500 sheep on a hill, and they had green grass, I'm sure, to eat. And one sheep started to leave the fold and got to the edge of the cliff and just walked right off. Boom, to its death. The second sheep was like, where'd my friend go? Starts following him. Boom, falls to his death. And they get in a single file line and they start going. One after another. And you would think that one sheep would go, you know, it's the weirdest thing. When he takes that step right there, I don't see him anymore. And he's gone. And maybe go to the edge and just kind of look down, like what's going on down here? And then tell everybody to stop. But that's not the way that sheep roll. I'm just going to follow. I'm not going to look to my left. I'm not going to look to my right. I'm not going to critically think. And one after another, they go until there's this gigantic sheep trampoline on the bottom. And 1,100 land there and survive. And so, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's hardly a compliment. He's saying that we have that same tendency to just do the dumbest things. To not think objectively or wisely or eternally about the con consequences of decisions that we're going to make in our life. And we need guidance over and over and over again. And guess what? The Good Shepherd leads us into paths of righteousness. Or he leads us in right paths. Paths that will lead to blessing in our life instead of destruction in our lives. How does he lead us there? Well, he uses his word. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So through his word, he's saying this is the right way to go. Through his word, he's putting a big warning sign up by the cliff that we're tempted to walk off of. And he's saying, danger, don't go this way. And he's guiding us and he's leading us onto paths of blessing. And all of this is for his name's sake. I love that. Because ultimately, it's the shepherd whose name is on the line. If a shepherd loses all of their sheep and walks back to town, the townsmen don't look to the sheep as being guilty. They look at the shepherd and go, what did you do wrong? 
How could you have let all your sheep die? Jesus, our good shepherd, is never going to let his name be slandered. He will guide us into right paths. Fifth, we see that the good shepherd provides for us safety. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, verse 4 says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Of course, this is that ever-familiar line that is oftentimes used for a person, for a believer, who is at the end of their life. Somebody who knows that they might die, they might pass on into eternity. This is a wonderful verse that is often used in that context. In fact, a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Ryan and I were able to visit Sarah Mount, a beloved saint in our church who went home to be with Jesus, we were able to visit her and we both drove separately and we met there and showed up and we walked into Sarah's room and we both told her that we had some scripture to read and we hadn't talked about what scriptures we had to read, but both of us had Psalm 23. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal? I'm sure that's like the preloaded passage every pastor takes to a bedside. Actually, it's not. There's many passages that we use, but that felt especially appropriate for Sarah, to me anyway, because Sarah was a woman who had spent her entire life following the Lord as her shepherd, living a faithful life of godliness, putting him first and following him all of her days. And so why wouldn't we encourage her in her final hours that just as he's been faithful to you for all of these years, just as he's guided you through every dark valley you've ever been through, he's going to continue to guide you into safety even now. This idea of valley of the shadow of death refers to any dark or dangerous season of life that we might go through. It certainly would then perfectly suit going through the darkest and most dangerous valley that any of us are going to endure, which is death itself. But David here says that when he enters into those valleys in his life, that he will fear no evil. He's not afraid of evil befalling him. And why is that? He says, for you are with me. Sheep are willing to enter into a dark, spooky canyon if their shepherd is the one that's leading them there. Because they know that their shepherd is going to protect them in that dangerous situation. The rod there is a defensive tool that a shepherd would use to hit a coyote or a wolf or some other predator and beat them and keep them away from the sheep. The staff was a tool that a shepherd would use to direct the sheep in the, in the way that they need to go. And so David says, look, when I'm thinking about going into a scary season, a dark place, as long as the shepherd's there, coming with me and having these tools in his hands to protect me and to ensure that I get to the other side safely, I'm okay with it. I'm comforted by the fact that he is present with me. Commentators have long pointed out the shift that happens in the personal pronouns at this point. It went from the third person pronoun of he to the second person pronoun of you at verse 4. James Boyce writes this, he says, We are never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys. I love that thought. That it is as we travel through 
or journey through the valley of the shadow of death, that we experience God's presence in the most profound ways. That we realize God is right here with me in this moment. And when we come to that darkest and deepest and most terrifying valley, death itself, how precious is it going to be to have our good shepherd guiding us through that? Derek Kidner writes this, he says, Only the Lord can lead a man through death. All other guides turn back, and the traveler must go on alone. How profound is that? Your spouse can't walk with you through that. Your kids can't go. Your pastor can't go with you. Sure, your family, your friends, your doctors, they they can be there up until the moment that we breathe our last. And they can do everything in their power to encourage you and strengthen you and bring you to that moment. But the second we die, we go alone. Except if the Lord is our shepherd. He's there. He journeys with us. He comforts us and he guides us to an eternal home in his presence. That's so amazing to think about that he and he alone can be with his sheep even through death. Romans chapter 8 verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword, meaning death? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then Paul writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death itself, can separate you from Christ. He will be with you through death and on into eternity. Sixth, if the Lord is your shepherd, he will provide for you abundance. We see this in verse 5. David writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, the metaphor seems to shift from the Lord as shepherd to the Lord as a banquet host here at verse 5. There's a picture here in verse 5 of a celebration feast. And in biblical imagery, oil and wine can speak of joy and prosperity. God not only provides what is necessary, which we learned in verse 2, but he provides in abundance. The picture here in verse 5 is a table that is full of food. Oil in abundance so that people's heads can be anointed as they come in. A cup that is not just filled with wine. A cup that is overflowing with wine. It's a picture of abundance. God is not a stingy dad. I don't know what kind of dad you had. And men, I don't know what kind of dad you are. But some dads are quite stingy. They might have resources, but they just hold on to them and they don't give generously even to their own children. God is not like that. God is abundant and generous with his children and he blesses us with abundance. Now to be clear, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. 
And if you come to Jesus, you're going to have health and wealth and a long life and just all of these temporal blessings, although you might have some of that. Sometimes God does give us those blessings too. And he expects those of us who have been given such grace to steward it well and to be generous. But there's no guarantee that God's going to give you temporal abundance. But the point is this, that God will always abundantly give his people true riches, the things that ultimately matter. The, the little expression, in the presence of my enemies, could be translated one of two different ways, or I should say should be understood one of two ways. On one hand, it could mean that he's having this feast now in the presence of his enemies. It could mean that his enemies have been subdued. They've been conquered. They've been triumphed over. Derek Kidner thinks the enemies are there at the feast as captives. So they've been conquered and now they have to sit and watch as David is feasting in their presence. And so the idea would be that ultimately God will deliver us from every trial and there will be a feast eternally in God's presence where we are having an abundance for all time. Or it could also mean that God gives David this bounty even while his enemies are still about. He's having this in the presence of enemies who are still surrounding him, who are still out there. And so what this would mean then is that David is experiencing God's abundance and his bounty even while he's still under threat. David, even while he's under threat, is experiencing an inexplicable peace like Philippians 4 talks about. Or Paul tells us we don't have to be anxious. We can pray and we can trust God, and as we do, that he's going to give us a peace that surpasses understanding. It's inexplicable. We'll have a peace in the middle of a storm. Or it's this overflowing joy, like James chapter 1 talks about, even in the midst of trial, that we can count it all joy. That, that's available to the Christian because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. And these are the true riches that God gives to his people. Things that many non-believers would gladly trade for money, status, if they could just have lasting peace, if they could just have lasting joy. Either way, when the Lord is your shepherd, you will be overflowing with true riches. And now the seventh thing, and David ends here, possibly, arguably, saving the best for last, like a good poet, if the Lord is your shepherd, he will provide for you unending grace. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love how he says, surely. It's as if he's saying, I mean, how else could it possibly be? Of course it'll be there. Certainly this is what's going to be true. If God's my shepherd, then surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all of my days. That word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed, which means steadfast love. And he says that God's steadfast love, his committed love to his people, and God's goodness are going to follow his people for all of their days. Now follow literally means pursued. This idea that God's goodness and his mercy or his steadfast love will actually pursue you all of your days. One person said that if the Lord is our shepherd, then goodness and mercy are his 
sheepdogs. So the Lord is pursuing us and walking with us and we have goodness and mercy all of our days, pursuing us and keeping us in the love of the Lord. David says, all the days of my life. Family, God is always only ever good to his people. There's never a moment in your life, if you belong to Jesus, where God is somehow working against you, where God is plotting evil for you. He is always only ever good to his people. The promise that he made to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah is equally true for every Christian today. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Goodness and mercy are going to follow us all the days of our lives. And he says that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The house of the Lord is certainly a reference to the temple. But here's the interesting thing. Nobody actually lived in the temple. And so David here is referring to the idea that, the, that he's going to dwell in the presence of God forevermore. Now, the word forever simply means to length of days. So it's a way of saying that he's going to dwell in God's presence for the rest of his life. But as Christians, we know that this extends beyond earthly life. Jesus says as much in John chapter 14, where he tells us, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Friends, if the Lord is your shepherd this morning, you will, ex- you will experience unending grace. God's goodness and his steadfast love are going to pursue you for all of your days and on into eternity. So that the moment that you pass from this life to the next, you will find that Jesus is with you, that he's prepared a place for you already, And that he's there on eternity's shores to welcome you into his kingdom forevermore. This morning, we've looked together at the most famous psalm in the Psalter. A psalm that teaches us this incredible truth that the Lord is a shepherd for his people. And so the most important thing for anybody who thinks about Psalm 23 is to ask, is the Lord my shepherd? Am I truly one of his sheep? Do I belong to the fold? Am I a part of the sheepfold? And I would ask you in closing, is the Lord your shepherd today? Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice. They know his voice. They understand his voice. Have you heard God's call in your life? Where God's calling you to turn away from any other false God or any other thing that you're tempted to bank your future and your hopes and your security on and say, no, 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 that's not where it's at. I'm putting my trust in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to entrust my life and my soul into his care. Have you responded to his call? Have you made that decision in your life? To make the Lord your shepherd by faith. If you have, then everything we've just talked about this morning is true for you. Praise God. Hallelujah. If you have not, what in the world are you waiting for? 
There is going to come a moment when it's too late to make a decision to have the Lord be your shepherd. None of us know how long we have in this life. Some of us feel like we've got years. We, listen, every single day is an, is an extension of God's grace. Your number could get called today or tomorrow. We don't know. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, Today, if you can hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We don't know if we have tomorrow. So if you've never made the Lord your shepherd, today can be that day for you. You can right now in this moment make a conscious decision in your own heart that Jesus is now my shepherd. And you can declare him as the Lord of your life from this day forward. And if you do, he hears you. And if he, you do, he receives you into his fold. Let's pray together.